Father, we ask now as we look into your word, Lord, that you would strengthen the marriages, this church and all who are here today, and those who will be married someday in the future, and that you would use this message to be helpful and not hurtful. And I ask, Lord, that you would, uh, your spirit would, would speak to each of us and pray that, um, Lord, you've promised that all scripture is profitable, useful, so that we might be thoroughly equipped and we ask that, Lord, this living word would direct our hearts today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're giving marriage instructions this morning, so if you're, if you're single uh, here this morning, stick with us because Paul says some really revolutionary things about being single, and we're gonna be dealing with those in the next few weeks uh, in the rest of 1 Corinthians <clears throat> 7. But sometimes when you're going through a book, you know, you, I'm sure some of you are wondering if you read ahead, like, man, I, I wonder what Pastor Vale's gonna say today, or maybe he's finally gonna be say to my spouse what I've always wanted to be saying to my spouse or something. And uh, so this is one of those uncomfortable messages. It's kind of like a Mother's Day sermon. Uh, when, after doing a few of these Mother's Day sermons, I remember early on reading Proverbs 31, thinking it would be a great encouragement to the mothers on Mother's Day. And you know, some of the mothers came up afterwards and one said, you know, if we didn't feel bad enough as it already was, then you had to give us the example of Proverbs 31 of this, you know, incredible superhero woman that, and they just felt worse, you know. So Mother's Day is one of those things where some are really encouraged, some really excited, and some are really frustrated, and many are filled with heartache and for various reasons. And I could go on and on, but... I think the same is true with a text like this in marriage, that uh, there are different people are different places. And so, without further ado, let's jump into God's word. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, if you were to think this morning, if you just came in here and, you ha and this is what all you've read in the Bible about marriage, you'd probably have some pretty hard thoughts about the Apostle Paul. And keep in mind, and we're gonna jump into the context in a minute. There's, the Bible actually says a lot about marriage, a lot of big pieces, and he's narrowly focused here as he's addressing issues of which they have written to him about. And so, let me just remind you, as a kind of a cursory, six reasons for marriage, um, and only a couple of those are mentioned here in the text. Marriage is meant to be a provision from loneliness. These are all P's, and I'm getting most of these from John MacArthur, who's got a great sermon on this text. But a provision from loneliness, it's meant for procreation. The first command of the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply, and it's not good for man to be alone. So right in Genesis 2, before any sin has entered the world, uh, be fruitful and multiply 
and it's not good for man to be alone. And we see that it's a picture of Christ in the church. That's why God has given marriage, and it says the two will become one flesh. Paul says, I'm talking about a mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. So the two becoming one flesh is not just about sex. It's ultimately pointing, it's about Christ in the church. So it's meant to be a picture. It's also meant to be for the raising of godly offspring, Malachi 2. Uh, and then there's a protection and purity from sexual immorality. And Paul just talks about sexual pleasure here, the rights that we are to give to one another. And so there's a different reasons. I'm sure there's more, but those are a few to think about. But he's narrowly focusing because most scholars think that in chapter 7 to 11, Paul is dealing with specific concerns that they had first written to him. And so apparently what had happened in the context of, of Corinth, and you remember, they're just, they're kind of a mess, right? I mean, chapters five, six, and seven are all dealing with sexual issues, and they're all like, really? Like, you're scratching your head like, how bad can this be? I mean, chapter five, you got a guy living, sleeping with his stepmother, okay? So it's not his biological mom, dad somehow is remarried, but the son is now with the, with the, the wife of his dad. That's bad, right? And he's saying, kick him out of the church. That's chapter five. Then you get to chapter six, and you've got the men, and, and the women too. There were cult prostitutes at the temple for men and women. And so they weren't going to sex in the home for their sexual outlet. They were going to the temple and sleeping with prostitutes. And the church was even succumbing to this, people in the church. So chapter six, he's dealing with that issue. And you're like, is that weird or what? Well, in chapter seven, you've got some people that had come to Christ. And when they came to Christ, their wife was not a believer or spouse. Could have been a man or a woman. And now they had this thinking that, well, if we're one flesh, I can no longer sleep with my spouse because they're not a believer. And that would be unholy. And so I'm going to be holy now. And the way to be holy is to be celibate in marriage and to have no more sex. So he, in chapter 7, he's saying, uh, concerning the matters of which you wrote, it's not good for a man to touch a wife. Like, there were people actually holding to this. Okay? And so the word touch um, is a euphemism for sexual relations. It's used several times in the Bible that way. In Genesis 20, you may remember when God told Abimelech, you're a dead man. You're a dead man because the woman you've taken, she's a man's wife. And then he says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God kept Abimelech from having sexual relations with Sarah, Abraham's wife. The touch is referring to that. Same in Ruth. When You remember when Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but stay close to my young women and let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And that doesn't mean like, you know, tap on the shoulder and run away. The touch means to violate you. And it's referring to sexual relations. Same in Proverbs 6, where we're told the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts, hunts down a precious life. Can a man scoop fire to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife, none who touches her 
will, will go unpunished. So you can see from the Bible that touches is often in a euphemism for sexual relations. And aren't you glad that Adam and Eve didn't apply 1 Corinthians 7.1? Or the human race would have died out right then and there. And all of us are here today because somebody did not apply 1 Corinthians 7.1, <clears throat> obviously. So we have a, a messed up church and you have to think for a moment, okay, how does this relate to our culture? We're also a messed up culture. Chris Rock has a joke that he gets a lot of mileage out of. He says, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? And he, he's got a pretty interesting dichotomy for us, doesn't he? Like, which is worse? And we live in interesting times where 2011, the Pew Research Center found that 51% of Americans were married compared to 72% in 1960, and the rates are continuing to decline. Yet the rates of cohabitating couples are on the rise. Less than half a million couples were cohabitating in 1960 compared to 7.5 million in 2010, and that number is on the rise. And divorce rates continue to astound everyone. The 2009 census in the U.S. showed that one out of two first marriages estimated, was estimated to end in, in divorce. So co cohabitation's at an all-time high, divorce is on the rise, marriage is on the wane in our culture. And so this text is dealing with a specific problem as it's related to marriage, and he's dealing with the issue of sexual relations. So let's see what Paul has to say for the church in Corinth and for us as well. So there are, we have the context and we have the commands. And so the commands are several in this text. The first one is verse two. He says, let each have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay, this is not a suggestion. This is not like a good idea. It's actually an imperative. And what he's saying is God has given marriage as a protection against sexual immorality. God's provision of sex, which he created for our enjoyment, is to be thoroughly enjoyed in marriage. And we discussed this two weeks ago, how we, we referred to um, intimacy. Uh, sex is like epoxy or a superglue. It's this thing that welds you together. It's the commitment adhesive apparatus where we renew our covenant bonds of total acceptance and commitment. So the idea is I fully accept you, I fully give myself to you, and that's done in the covenant bonds of marriage. If you try to bring this, this union together outside of marriage, it creates a lots of ripping and tearing and scarring and pain and frustration um, and lots of difficult things that come from that. So Paul is actually giving this uh, admonition in verse two as a protection. It's a protection against porneia, sexual immorality. And so then verse three, he says, both the husband and the wife are to give the spouse, their spouse, the gift, and this is interesting in the original language, of what they owe. So the word for conjugal rights in the ESV translations, in the other translations are referred to as duty or the affection due her, uh, but the idea of this Greek word is actually a debt. So this is part of your, your marital vows. You have an obligation to one another. Marriage comes with privileges, but it also has responsibilities, and it's referred to as debt, a duty, and obligation. And Paul gives this imperative mutually uh, 
to both spouses. And he's not suggesting this or recommending this as a, as a valid option. He's saying, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, likewise also the wife the duty to her husband. Now, I used to think, when I used to look at this text, that, that I used to think women would need to hear this more than men. That was just kind of my assumption, thinking men are more, more driven uh, than the ladies. But after years of kind of heartache stories in marriage and counseling, hearing stories, I've often come to realize that the ladies experience this just as much as men and sometimes more. And sadly, often the, the kind of the, the common denominator underneath is often pornography is gotten in the mix. And so the women are frustrated that the men are looking somewhere else and there's a common denominator under it. And yet sometimes the men are running to porn because their wife is withholding from them. And then you're on the, the crazy cycle, this catch 22. And Paul just gives some very plain advice of what we're to do. And as we have to work, out, work this out in our own marriages. These are all present tense, uh, habitual things that are be done. It's not like a, a one-time thing. And uh, we'll come back to that verse four in a minute. But verse five, the imperative in verse five, he, he tells in verse five, do not deprive one another. And so this is an interesting word. It's the same word that's used in chapter six when he's talking about lawsuits. And when he's dealing with in chapter six with these lawsuits, he says, dude, stop defrauding one another. Do not defraud one another. Same word, same imperative. Actually, the imperative's in chapter seven, but in six, what he's saying is, why not just write off the debt? Why not rather be wronged? Why not suffer the loss? So when it comes to lawsuits, just write it off. But he doesn't say that in chapter seven. He doesn't say, just write it off. He's saying, stop depriving one another. Do not steal or rob one another. And then he gives an exception clause here, that there is this exception clause. It's kind of like, uh, and actually some translations, the New King James and the King James actually throw in fasting and prayer. And the idea is that there's a really serious matter, so serious that you wanna give yourself to fasting and prayer or, or fasting from sexual relations because you're so committed to prayer. It needs to be by mutual agreement that you're not gonna come together for you know, a certain period of time, maybe the next week, two weeks. We're gonna give ourselves to prayer but it says it needs to be by both parties consenting. And the Greek word there is by symphony. That's where we get the Greek word symphony. So if both parties are in symphony, in agreement, that that should be the case, that's the only exception that Paul gives for um, pulling away for a time in marriage. So then he says, though, come together again that Satan may not tempt you. So one spouse might be thinking it's, it's holy, and you, know, you can imagine in the context here where you have people coming to Christ and now they're, they're so much holier than their unbelieving spouse that they're no longer having relations with them. Imagine how that would make this other person feel. And, and, and Paul is saying, you can't do that. That's not... Uh, you know, it's this idea of a Gnostic type of thinking that the body is bad and so we're gonna refrain from that. And so, um, verse four is pretty revolutionary if you think about it. Paul is writing 
in, in the, into a Greek society, um, a Roman culture, and um, here there was a great hierarchy in which the men ruled, and the wives were basically treated as property. They were treated as property more than people, and what Paul is doing is he's actually elevating, and he puts, there's everything in verse four is about is mutual, and that they're equal. And so verse four says, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so this was very attractive news for the, for the wives in that day to hear that they were being elevated like this. You know, notice the text doesn't say, um, you know, it gives the command both directions, or it tells you, you know, the authority, this word, uh, when we get married, we are resigning the authority of our bodies to our spouse. And so, it doesn't say here, men take the lead, be a man. Um, it doesn't say to the wives, wait for your husband to initiate since he's the leader and you're the responder. It doesn't say that. And it doesn't say men take the lead, be a man. It doesn't say that. And it doesn't say, why not be defrauded? Just suck it up and take the loss. It doesn't say any of those things. What it says is you're not your own. Your own body doesn't belong exclusively to you anymore. Actually, it's just the opposite. When you make vows, you surrender the authority of your body to your spouse, not for selfish purposes to take, but for the unselfish purpose of giving. Notice that the verse four is talking about is, um, the idea is, to, is, 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 is a giving. Verse two, or verse three, the husband should give to his wife, likewise the wife to her husband. And so the idea is not a taking, but it's giving. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is that we have a responsibility in marriage to sexually stimulate and satisfy our spouse in marriage so that, in order that, we are not tempted by the devil. Paul does not say take what is yours, but rather give what is theirs. And so um, there's lots of places in the Bible where we actually see this lived out. Proverbs 5 would be an example. The whole book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon's beautiful poetry. I think you see 1 Corinthians 7 um, lived out. Where here a husband is desiring his wife. He says to her in chapter 7, How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Ribbon. Your nose is a, like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like, like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your statue is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly from my beloved gliding over lips and teeth. And she responds to him and says in chapter 10, verse 10, after he is praising her for her features, he said, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. 
Come, my beloved, let's go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early in the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. Then I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and besides our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. See, I want you to know that that's as holy as praying and tithing. Do you believe that? Or do you have more of a Victorian view of, I can't believe he's reading Song of Solomon at church, you know? We just took an offering, and you're going to eat lunch, and you're going to do those things, and this is just as holy as praying, eating, and exercising in the marriage context. John MacArthur puts it like this. He says, this is practical stuff. This gets right down to where we live, right where we're at, but that's the way the word of God is. If I say I love my spouse, if you say you love your husband, if that's really true, you would never willfully, openly put that person in a place where Satan begins to tempt them to carnality. John Piper put it like this. Do we guard ourselves from Satan with the shield of faith or with the shield of sex? The answer for married people is that faith makes use of sexual intercourse as a means of grace for the people for the people God leads into marriage, sexual relations are a God-ordained means of overcoming temptation to sin. The sin of adultery, sin of sexual fantasizing, the sin of pornographic reading. Faith humbly accepts such gifts and offers thanks. And so the problem here, there's many problems, but the problem is instead of, of giving thanks and seeing um, sex relations in marriage as a signpost. And if you're familiar with the idea of signpost, it's C.S. Lewis's idea of joy. And the idea of joy is that you always wanna know what's behind it. What's behind this joy? Who is the person who made that joy? I wanna follow that stream to the ocean. I don't wanna just settle for the stream, I want the ocean. What is beyond this? What is this pointing to? Or do we just stop at the signpost? You see, and that's where sin perverts and taints, is that God's greatest gifts are Satan's greatest weapons. And God has given wonderful signposts and mile markers in our journey. And the last thing that God created was a woman. And for many men, that's been a bad stumbling block of making that the signpost of idolatry rather than looking beyond the stream and keep taking that back to see the glory of God behind that. And corruption happens when we abuse God's gifts and make gods of them thinking they will satisfy us independently of God or short-circuiting God altogether. What do you want most this morning? And if the answer is a spouse, intimacy, romance, you're, you're looking at a signpost, an advertisement, and not the real thing. In the book of Hosea, God is dealing with his bride, Israel, and he's dealing with Hosea and his bride, Gomer. And Gomer, like Israel, they both were adulterers and idolaters who were looking to other lovers to satisfy them. And God is gonna win her back, and this is how he does it. He says in Hosea chapter two, verse 14, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, a door of hope, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth and as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth 
and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me to, in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You see, God says to Israel, and to us this morning, I'll be a better lover, a better husband and a better spouse than any earthly lover or any earthly spouse could have loved you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so have I rejoiced over you, God says. And he says, I'll make you mine forever. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come to be ravished by God. He's put eternity in our hearts. John Donne has a poem, and the poem is a prayer. And the prayer goes like this. Take me to you, imprison me, for I except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste except you ravish me. You see, real, real joy is found there in the Lord. Joy is often a substitute, C.S. Lewis says. Our, our sex is often a substitute for joy. Randy Alcorn in his book, he said this in, in his book, Heaven. He says, I've never been to heaven, yet I miss it. Eden's in my blood. The best things of life are souvenirs from Eden, appetizers of the new earth. There's just enough of them to keep us going, but never enough to make us satisfied with the world as it is or ourselves as we are. We live between Eden and the new earth, pulled toward what we once were and what we yet will be. And as Christians, we're linked to heaven in ways too deep to comprehend. Similarly, according to Ephesians 2, we're already seated with Christ in heaven, so we can't be satisfied with less. Desire is a signpost pointing to heaven. Every longing for better health is a longing for the new earth. Every longing for romance is a longing for the ultimate romance with Christ. Every desire for intimacy is a desire for Christ. Every, every thirst for beauty is a thirst for Christ. Every taste of joy is but a foretaste of a greater and more vibrant joy. And so as we come to the table, may we think like the the hymn writer said, we taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Let's pray together. Lord, come satisfy our hearts now. Open our mouths wide. I ask that you'd fill it, and that we would know the living bread. We'd know you and that you would satisfy all the deep desires of our heart, and that you would forgive us, Lord, of our iniquities, our sin, our rebellion, of looking to other lovers and other things to meet these ultimate desires of our hearts that you've come to rescue. And so we ask that you would lead us to fresh repentance and fresh faith as we meet you in communion. We ask in your name. Amen.